You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Hi everyone, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. I'm sorry, but I have to start today's program with an editorial spray in good old shock jock style. It comes from being in lockdown for weeks with COVID where you see the connivances of the bad guys in slow motion until the actual kill is done in poisonous technicolour via the horrifying curtailed media. Ah, the media. Now, there is a lot of dross talked about the media as if all are one and the same. If they were all the same, then the Liberals and their masters would not have spent decades on bringing the ABC down. The simple truth is that any media outlet is run by the ideological framework of the power interest that propels it. The media talked about with contempt is like the virus that jumbles the words on your computer or the moth that destroys the fibres of your favourite jumper. Let's begin with Channel 7 News. Now, you may not know that the Channel 7 News is the most watched news every night. Now it beats Nine and the ABC for television news. I know this because I get a newsletter that aggregates the figures for most watched TV programs every day. I reckon their edge is The Chaser. The Chaser is a game show with a team of individuals pitted against a knowledgeable chaser for money. It is on before the seven news and interspersed with news headlines and ads. Everyone who watches gets the Channel 7 spin, and spin it is, because even when the COVID figures are down and restrictions eased in Victoria, the slant moves to the mental health of our school children being kept from school. In fact, the usual right-wing love affair with law and order is strained as they work to undermine the Victorian Labor government. Just an aside, the game show itself isn't neutral. Every question taps the ball of consciousness into a particular direction, so the questions about the Australian actor who starred in Without a Trace is a subtle advertising ploy now that Anthony Lapalia is in a new Channel 7 program, Halifax Retribution. Innocuous, maybe, but even trivia is an advertising ploy that gets past the keeper. This consistent and outlandish agenda setting, not reporting, should be set in the context of the mining business interests of the head honcho of seven, I suggest. Class warrior with a very public voice. The Channel 10 News is an interesting contrast since the same core information isn't so heavily ideologically weighted against the Victorian government. 
interestingly enough, because the business is owned by a Canadian company, it didn't receive any of the federal government's JobKeeper funds, unlike the Channel 7 network. Could this be a factor in the comparative vanilla reporting? At the daily media conferences given by Dan Andrews, a triumvirate of female reporters have been running the campaign to chisel any weaknesses in his presentations. The quarantine hotel debacle is a gift, of course, but no questions about the private company involved, no questions that frame the federal government as responsible for the deaths in aged care. When Mary Makakos regrettably resigned, one of the reporters actually slyly used her first name, Mary, as if there was sympathy for the ex-minister and Andrews was a male oppressor. She called her Mary. The same reporter has been hammering the health minister for weeks. So it was shocking to me listening, reminding me of a meme on Facebook, a young man with a T-shirt declaring, join the Liberals, become a sociopath, which elicited a comment, I thought you had to be a sociopath to be a Liberal, by the by. Andrews dead batted it. He was playing cricket to her chess. It won't matter what Mary Makakos has to say because these reporters have been given a job, whatever the material. You could divine this when you hear how they frame their questions. Some people are saying, or a lot of people are saying, this is when they are talking about specific controls to reduce the spread of COVID in the middle of the pandemic, governing by gossip. Interesting moments that can only be gleaned by sitting through the entire mind-numbing press conferences for the nugget. So the other day, one of the sainted three asked the Premier if Victoria would go for an increase in the GST because of COVID rather than calling for the continuance of JobKeeper or other federal assistance. Now, Andrews says to her directly, it would be interesting to know who in the federal sphere asked you to ask that question. Because indeed, that is who these journalists are there for. Not for you or me or the general public, but for the Liberal Party power brokers. The chessboard has been pretty clumsily set up, but effective. Tie up all arms of mainstream media. Sky News, which beams across the rural areas of Australia, are unabated and with little competition. This network has been the epicentre of anti-COVID conspiracy theories on mainstream channels. Remember, they have a stranglehold on rural Australia. This is, this is as the ABC is being curtailed and local papers have been shut down. I wonder who wants everyone to go back to work. Getting rid of the first news bulletin on, on ABC Radio, the 7.45am report, might not seem like much, but for people who know about the mechanics of the media, you will know it is here that the agenda of the news day begins, here and traditionally the newspapers of the day. This shows that the wreckers are not at the doors of the Citadel, but inside, and have a clear idea of how to reduce any contrary information unfiltered by their ideological prism getting on the airwaves. The recent appointment of head of ABC Radio News to an ex-News Corp Sun-Herald person makes the future of the ABC clear, even without the cuts that never happened, according to Morrison. The blended families of former corporations and the public broadcaster has been going on for a while, but with the shutting of AAP, country newspapers, the collapsing of the old business model to digital, uh, the media industry 
has turned into musical chairs. No player a winner but the power elite, who don't care about the general good, but have the media to tell you what the general good is. The obsession with American politics over our own is also interesting. Why is Trump not really interested in COVID? Look at the figures in America. According to some recent figures, 7 million people have COVID and about a quarter of a million Americans have died. Shocking. But did you know that America has a population of around 313 million people? Sobering, isn't it? Plenty more where that came from. His campaign is textbook misinformation, seed doubt around the mail system, in fact, appoint a Republican donor to head the mail system so that its systems can be altered. Repeat on the most popular mainstream outlet, Fox News, that the mail system can't be trusted. Make sure that it is the topic, nothing else. Find a second topic to remove every other off the podium. Chess again, not governance. Repeat, repeat, repeat. The fundamentally unfair, unequal nature of their democracy is only discussed by those it affects, and that isn't Fox News. Unfair mail system. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Simple, really. It's called agenda setting. Trump isn't rich. Trump is an eugenicist, as reported by the Rolling Stone, as its reporter reports one of Trump's speeches to his followers unadulterated eugenicism theory, while at the same time he is cozying up with Netanyahu with the Middle East peace plan, and some are saying that they are being touted for a Nobel Peace Prize. Bizarre, but chess seems like a stand-up game, doesn't it? As Kevin would say, you couldn't write this stuff. Trump just has to say something isn't true, apparently, and they go away. The reason I bring this up is that Morrison appears to be a devotee of Trump's methods and when, whenever Morrison says something, it would be wise to check if the kernel of the statements stands up, whatever the spin. If what is said is what you think it means. Remember when he said there were no cuts to the ABC? Now, I know this has been a long-winded rant, but I have been having unsettled sleep over the forced herding of us mere mortals into a worse future by probably power interests we are only sketchily aware of. It is irritating, and I'll finish with just one more reflection that has been churned up over the past weeks, the concept of the fight between good and evil. I know completely unnuanced and throws us back intellectually to an era of religious hegemony, but in some ways the need to stand firm even when the whispering gossip causes you to falter means only that you need to go to the first principles. Do you really want ScoMo to be let off lightly for cutting millions out of aged care when he was minister for the sector, even when for years workers and families have been calling for change? This isn't a we-couldn't-tell-this-would-happen moment. And as a person on a recent webinar said, we leave our most precious people to us emotionally, our young and our age, to a fate of a system that places queen business above care. Remember, first principles, despite the barrage and the pressure points that are pressed, the environment is in danger, the young are without jobs and a future, the homeless have the foot of developers on their necks and the public service has been disrobed by unadulterated corporate interests. Remember this when you put your voice into the gossip chain. A final thought from the pop puree of this week is the right is built on outrage. 
and the left is built on nuance. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station, more precious than ever. Today, we honour the passing of two warriors of the feminist fight, Susan Ryan, the first female federal minister in Australia and architect of the Sex Discrimination Act, and Helen Reddy, who penned the song that goes down in history as a succinct statement of purpose, I Am Woman. Susan Ryan was a remarkable person, and Australia was lucky to have her. The work she did developing structures to support equality in Australian society stand as a monument and her passing deserves not just condolences but tribute. This speech it was given in the 1980s. It comes from the ANU Women's Study Program Sound Recordings Collection and it's a talk on women in politics. It is particularly fascinating, particularly because of its age. The general position of women in politics, of course, is, is uh, an abysmal one from any uh, egalitarian or democratic point of view. And I'm sure you're all aware of the statistics. Um, Malcolm McCarris, in an article in the Australian Quarterly, September 1977, uh, has a very good, up-to-date analysis of just where women are and where they're not in the uh, parliamentary system in Australia and uh, of a grand total of 735 uh, elected positions available in federal and state parliaments at the moment, 27 are held by women. And uh, only, uh, I'm sorry, that was a total of 762 positions available. 27, it's even worse, are held by women and only 62 have ever been elected. In the federal parliament, only 12 women have ever been elected to the Senate and only four women have ever been elected to the House of Representatives. And there is, as of now, no woman at all in the Federal House of Representatives. Um, McCarris points out that while 50% of women are voters, only 4% of legislators belong to the female sex. And when you take into account that uh, some of those very few women who have been elected to state and federal parliaments have been elected um, after their husband's death or sometimes following in their father's footsteps. Not that I want to make any derogatory comment about that, but it does put a slightly different complexion on the, the task being into Parliament. Uh, the picture is very dismal indeed. And this, of course, in a, in a country where uh, female suffrage came earlier than most other countries in the world and where full uh, political rights came at the same time. Now, if we uh, want to anal analyse this lack of participation of women in parliamentary politics, and I suppose you've realised by now that that's what I'm talking about. I wasn't going to talk about alternative politics today, although if people want to bring that up later, that's okay. If we look at the lack of participation of parliamentary politics and attempt to analyse it, I think it does bring us to some very, very fundamental questions about women and society and history and power. Uh, it's not a superficial question, it's not just a question of why women haven't chosen a particular pr profession or a particular kind of activity. In fact, it leads us to uh, two very fundamental questions. One about uh, women, their nature and how they're perceived in the whole of society, and about politics. And uh, the answer to both of those questions seems to me to be something to do with the concept of power. 
uh, in very simple terms, um, women don't participate in politics because politics is and is seen to be uh, an area where uh, power is exercised. And if we look at it from that point of view, we find uh, the low participation of, of women in politics uh, similarly low to the participation of women in other areas where uh, power is seen to be exercised. And the two obvious examples are big business. There aren't too many women um, running multinational companies or anything comparable to that in the business world. And the judiciary, where only recently have there been appointments by progressive governments of uh, women to the judiciary. Um, on the other hand, if you look at uh, professions which are low in prestige, uh, you find uh, a high participation of women in those. And two obvious examples are teaching and social work. So the whole question does seem to me to be one of power, where power is perceived to reside and who are perceived to be proper persons to exercise that power. And that's why it does seem to me that the, when we're examining why women have been excluded from or have excluded themselves from political power, we're really getting down to some very basic uh, issues. And uh, for that reason, I would imagine an, an examination of women in politics is quite central to the course on women in society that you're undertaking. Of course, um, there are some sort of simple, one-dimensional uh, answers to why women don't participate in politics more, and they're fairly obvious sort of things like uh, the different kinds of family responsibilities women have, the lack of uh, childcare or uh, household assistance, which makes it particularly difficult in Australia where being in politics means travelling great distances very often, um, difficulties. And I would point out here too that in societies or countries where there's been a servant class, the movement of women into political activity uh, has been greatly facilitated. Not for one moment that I'm arguing or suggesting uh, any uh, development towards uh, uh, or any uh, favourable comment on uh, societies which have servant classes, but it is just noticeable that in those societies which do have a servant class, uh, political participation of women has been much higher. Uh, in England, women from upper class women who've had uh, servants of various kinds have participated in politics very actively for quite a long time. And in developing countries too, it's, it's very noticeable that there is quite a high participation of uh, women of a certain class in their party political parliamentary systems and those women, of course, do have, have servants. But if you look conversely at the lack of a servant class in Australia, then that's one, um, not, I don't think terribly important, but one obvious factor that explains the lack of, of female participation. Uh, there are also other fairly superficial things, like women generally lack training in, or experience in the work areas from which politicians tend to be drawn. And these would be, in the Labor Party, um, the trade union movement and the, those trades or occupations which are represented in strong uh, unions. Um, law, uh, in the Liberal Party, uh, accountants are very uh, frequently seen entering into the Parliament. 
Um, but on the other hand, of course, there are a lot of teachers or former teachers in the parliament and that is, again, a profession where there are plenty of women. So the lack of a sort of specific vocational preparedness, um, whilst it has been put up by some people as being a problem, uh, seems to me to be only a very, very slight part of the explanation. And also, in answer to those sort of arguments, you know, one can point out that uh, the women who have participated in politics have often done so despite these sorts of handicaps. Uh, the first woman elected to the House of Representatives, Damien Lyons, had in fact 13 children and as far as I can recall no specific um, vocational training um, and there are you know, plenty of uh, children amongst the women currently in, in Parliament so that really although it's a very real problem for women who are contemplating or are actively engaged in, in um, politics, the problem of childcare and housework and all that stuff, it doesn't seem to me in itself to provide anything like um, a serious answer to the question, why aren't there more of us? So I think if we're looking for explanations, we should look more towards um, current uh, notions of socialisation. And, that, and from that area of, of study of human behaviour, I think we can uh, find more of the, the basic answers to the basic question. If you think of the sort of attributes that politi politicians are supposed to have, or successful politicians are seen as having, you find a list like this, aggression, ambition, ruthlessness, um, ability with, to withstand heavy stress, and uh, that stress comes, I think, in different ways. If you're in government, the heavy stress comes from all those uh, major uh, decisions you have to take, all those big responsibilities you have. If you're in opposition, as I can tell you from the heart, the stress tends to come from frustration of not being able to take the decisions you want to make and not having the responsibilities you're just dying to uh, shoulder. There are enormously extended working hours that are presumed to require greater physical and psychological stamina that women are supposed to have, uh, the ability to appear authoritative, to exercise authority, the ability to take important decisions calmly and rationally, and so on. Now, all of these sorts of characteristics, of course, contrast directly and strongly with uh, the female stereotype, and I'm sure you've given consideration to the, the female stereotype in this course. So this perception of the sorts of characteristics you need to have to be a successful politician uh, combined with the sorts of perception our kinds of societies have about what women in general are like uh, does start to answer the question because women are perceived as lacking in and properly lacking in all those sorts of characteristics. Indeed, women who exercise those sorts of characteristics, ambition, ruthlessness, aggression and so on, are not admired for them, as men are, but uh, find themselves you know, very severely criticised um, for, for moving outside their stereotype in that way. Now, this sort of socialisation, expectation of certain kinds of characteristics, I think has provided two major obstacles to women's participation. One is for women themselves. <clears throat> Women's self-image, self-esteem um, is formed, like anybody else's, by the society around them, by the expectations that people have of them from an early age, 
by the things they're rewarded for, the things they're punished for, the directions they're pushed in, the directions they're pulled back from. And this whole um, process of socialising women into not having those sorts of characteristics adds up to a situation where women will say of themselves, oh, I couldn't do it, you know, it's not me. Um, you know, I may have political ideals, I may have a very strong commitment to my society, to social change. Um, I may uh, believe that many things I see about me are wrong and could be remedied by uh, the proper sort of uh, government action, but I am not the person to do it. I don't have the right characteristics. And this, you know, low self-image of women in respect to uh, political activity is very widespread and strangely enough is very widespread um, amongst women who are politically active in ways outside of the ma mainstream and um, in that latter way I mean women uh, who are active in women's organisations, com small scale community organisations, parent and citizen organisations. Uh, there are enormous numbers of women who have had experience in all these sorts of political organisations, which are political organisations, and who um, handle the various demands of this activity very competently, but who will not then, for themselves, translate those uh, abilities and skills they've acquired through this small-scale political activity to parliamentary politics. Uh, they'll still say, oh no, but I couldn't do that. Yes, I can get up at the PNC and make a speech and organise uh, fundraising and so on, but, you know, I couldn't go into Parliament, even though the, the, the skills and uh, competences required are virtually the same. And I was particularly um, struck by this when I watched over the weekend the Four Corners program on uh, CWA, the Country Women's Association. Um, they see themselves as a powerful group, as being able to bring about things like uh, lower STD, STD charges and so forth. But the leader of the current leader of this group kept stressing all the time, we are conservative, we are not radical, we um, only want to concern ourselves with women's issues, we don't want to take over the men's jobs. I mean, she didn't put it in those terms, but this message came out to me all the time that although on the one hand, there are this highly organised, powerful, self-confident, uh, very coherent in terms of their values, which are extremely narrow. I mean, that does make for coherence. Uh, very coherent political force, they would never dream of entering into the mainstream of political life. Um, and it's quite clear that they wouldn't because I mean, the country party, of course, is so overrepresented in the federal parliament and in other places that if they wish to bring some of their very active, experienced members from the country women's organisation into the parliament, presumably they could do so very easily by pre-selecting them and safe seats. So I think that, I mean, I refer in some detail to that program because it does seem to me to demonstrate you know, one of the obstacles I'm talking about, that women, even experienced, competent, capable women who are very self-confident in certain spheres of activity will not, because of the overall socialisation process, uh, see themselves as being able to transfer from a, an exclusively uh, women's political activity to the mainstream. And that, of course, means that many of the more active and experienced women in Australia just don't see themselves as likely candidates.
So that's one problem. The second problem that stems from um, the socialisation of men and women is the problem of political parties and how they view women as potential candidates. And here I think we get to an even more serious problem than women's self-image. All the major political parties, my own included, and you know, perhaps even slightly more so than uh, the Liberal Party, um, have believed without any evidence, and I repeat that, have believed without a shred of what we call hard data, that women as candidates are at a serious disadvantage. And therefore, they have time and time again refused to endorse women for safe seats and have tended only to uh, allow women to win pre-selections for marginal seats or certainly they have, women have been allowed to do their part of the honour of running in a completely hopeless seat. The only other comment I would like to make is that the um, participation of women in numerical terms in any political party doesn't really seem to make much difference when it comes to um, who gets the prestigious positions. Does it matter that women aren't participating in parliamentary politics or participating in a very minor way? And uh, I'm aware that there are many uh, women, uh, including parts of the, the women's movement, feminists, who say it doesn't matter because uh, these political structures are you know, male-dominated, male-developed, they're running a man's world in a man's way and there's really nothing to be gained by women trying to break into them, that you know, women should be looking for alternative ways of development. Well, I don't agree with that line. I think it does matter. I think it does matter philosophically and it does matter practically. It matters to me philosophically that we have a system which is supposed to be democratic and representative. We have a representative <coughs> democracy and yet 50% of people living in that democracy are represented only at something like 4% level. Um, you know, that seems to me to pose a, a, a problem which I take quite seriously um, because I, you know, I am committed to the idea of representative democracy. But practically it matters even more. And you know, here I just go very briefly through the, the kinds of disadvantages that women as a group, and particular women in particular groups, suffer because of virtually all male uh, legislators. And the kinds of disadvantages are indicated by, oh well, all sorts of material. But one studies of poverty. Uh, the largest group of people living in poverty in Australia are single mothers or women alone with children. Um, the largest number of uh, inmates of mental institutions are women. Uh, the greatest users of health services are women. Um, the people, the group with least access to the law are women, and so on and so forth. Um, and you can go through those sort of indicators and find women. I mean, it doesn't mean every single woman, of course, but certain groups of women, single mothers, migrant women, old women, uh, and so forth. All, all these groups are demonstrably uh, disadvantaged in our society and I would say that is because their needs are not acknowledged or met and can't be acknowledged or met in, um, by legislators who are all men. Uh, then there are other things. Uh, the planning of cities, the planning of suburbs, 
saying of transport services, uh, the siting of health services, all these sort of things again are extraordinarily unsatisfactory for the sorts of lives that most women live, raising families and so forth. Um, and again, those sorts of decisions, those planning decisions and provision of essential services are carried out by virtually all male legislators and they are clearly unsatisfactory. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, 
the only alternative. But with a lover I could hold my hand back and really laugh, really laugh. Thank you. East Gippsland Dispatch. Voices and stories of community and resilience from East Gippsland. This is Fiona. Welcome to another episode of East Gippsland Dispatch. In this podcast, Catherine Van Wilgenberg, float artist in residence in February 2020, just after the bushfires, talks again with Jack Wadcote, a long-term resident of East Gippsland. Jack worked at the Ramsdell Nowa Nowa Timber Mill and is the former owner of the Rabina Tourist Boat Enterprise on the Gippsland Lakes. Jack talks about the importance of involving young people in protecting the environment for the future in East Gippsland. He also suggests how local councillors can remain connected to their local residents while in office rather than lose touch on the ground. Do you think we're going to engage younger people in this conversation? Through the school. We're now getting schools which seem to be more inclined to have a healthy environment around those kids. You've only got to look up here at the Tulluan School. It's gradually growing into a, a unit which takes care of the environment around it far more. Those kids go home and tell their parents, and kids are pretty powerful. <laughs> they don't realise it yet, but they're pretty powerful. <laughs> they, have, they have ways and means of getting their parents to do something that the parent wouldn't have thought about in the first place. But because they're being educated back at the school on those issues, they take it home. The project which Lake Tyres Coast Action is developing at the moment... Lake Tyres Coast Action, yeah. Are, yeah. ...are developing with the biodiversity study at Lake Tyres Beach uh, through the bush there to find out what's there. Those kids become involved in it. They take that message home to their parents and hopefully those parents will say, hmm, didn't know that was there. I'd better look after it a bit more. I'd better keep the cat in, indoors instead of letting it run through. We don't want my dog chasing birds down the beach and this sort of thing. Those kids have the ability to, to bring that message home and take it out into the wider community, which is through council and through state government. Mm. It, it's, once again, it's the, chir- it's the pyramid. But you, the pyramid is reversed. Yeah, do, well, that, it that's up. it. It's the ground up and the top down. How yeah. do you think councils need to change or be changed in, in terms of those two pyramids, the top down? and the bottom up. What do we need to do to bring those two, them and us, together? I think they need to get out into the community and find out what the community wants rather than the, the, the big business. The big business are there for their daily bread, if you like, what bread they can make tomorrow. Whereas the people are more interested in their every in their community around their own buildings, their own mindset, if you like. They need to talk to those people who have environmental issues, who are trying to get a message through to the council. But at the moment, there doesn't seem to be that connection between the average person on the street and the councillor who was elected to vote for them in council meetings. Do you think the bushfires, the dire circumstances that many people are in, and of course we haven't even come to the end of summer yet, Mm. do you think what's happened so far this year in 2020 with the bushfires is going to make a difference? Yeah, I think people are so shocked. 
people are so shocked that this could happen in Victoria, in East Gippsland, that they're going to start thinking about what they do in their everyday life. Perhaps what I did yesterday wasn't the best outcome to prevent that fire. And how do you think that's going to impact on, on those pyramid. two pyramids? I think we're already seeing, seeing some things happening through state government where they're all of a sudden realising that they've got to find out what's the best way of managing these things. They're starting to have inquiries in there, but that inquiry needs to be broad enough to have the average Joe Blow on the street have input to it, not just executives who have very large uh, educational backgrounds. And education is okay, depending where you've got that education from. If it's a practical education, then you're more likely to have an outcome which looks after the environment. But if it's only an academic education, then perhaps it's not the right thing. How are you going to get your councillors to talk to you and to come to float and participate more actively in grounded activity? Because that's really what's that's needed, bit. isn't it? Do we have to change our process of representation? We've got a, a system under our governing bodies now that perhaps we need to be able to find a way of changing that, dare I say, the voting system? Yes. Can we change it to a circle? Yeah, well... Rather than a pyramid? That might be. I think that's <laughs> the way to be go. <laughs> a sphere. A sphere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A sphere would be better. But even in a circle, you've got to have a gate to get in. You have. <laughs> so where do you put that gate? On the bit close to the feet. It's a, it's a crystal rather than a circle, <laughs> right? Isn't it? So yeah, you've got you got the you've still got the apexes. Yeah. But you, you know everything is much more connected. So yeah. in other words, instead of flat and becomes like the internet, yeah. we have the technology to do that. Of course we do. What are your relationships with younger people? Are they are there many people who are committed, or are these people who tend to be blow-ins who are employed or have got jobs here, or people who are environmentally there's conscious? A, there's a pretty broad mix, broad mix of children here who have been given the opportunity of looking after the environment, and there are some children of the people who are in the business of developing property who are a little bit blind, and the kids become blind because of the way they live at home. There is too much of all the trappings around me today instead of being able to listen to what the kids want in their life rather than telling the kids this is what you'll have. So the opportunity there I think is through the school to have teachers who are friendly to the environment who have the ability to pass that knowledge on to the kids who then take it home. And, and that's a big question. It's only going to be time that does it whether the environment is ruined enough in the meantime to still be there uh, sufficiently to be able to be re regrouped into a, a place that you can live comfortably rather than living with trappings all around you. You know, when you look down the beach there and see the houses that, are, that have gone up over the last few years, they're mansions rather than living spaces. And that's a pity. Well, it's the same in the suburbs. Oh, it probably is, yeah. You know, you've yeah. got to have five bathrooms. Yes. Because banks so, are willing to give the money. They in, want to keep people in debt. They, they've got a hold of you. Once you've got a mortgage, they've got you. But we have to readdress the bank, which is what the Commission's been all about. And we yeah. have to go forward to the fact that you don't really need that much. You don't mm. need all that. You don't need to we be... We don't need it's it. It's a all. slavery mentality, isn't yeah. it? By the time you've got 
you know, the trappings around you if you put all your time in trying to keep those trappings together rather than get out and enjoying it. <laughs> and the kids today have got everything. But I do notice one thing that has happened, which is great, these are not allowed in the school anymore. And that's going to make a big difference to kids. They're going to have to talk to each other rather than use these to talk to The problem isn't the machine. It's the, the connection, our thinking with the machine. Yeah, the you know, like You've got to teach the kids how to use it. I mean, how marvellous is Wikipedia? And how marvellous is the access to all this information? And the, When we were young, when we were young, we had to become the encyclopedia. You had to use logic. And, you know, how much you knew was measured by how much you put in. That's right. It's not needed anymore. That kind of learning is... It's, I want to it's know how something, ha- I just go to the phone. I'm the worst in the world myself, because I go, I want to know something, you go over there and I Google it. My husband said, get off the phone. He says, you're an addict, you're as bad as your son. Your son comes home, I've got a 25-year-old. Your son comes home and you say, you t- you say to him, get off the phone, get off the phone. And he says, you're just as bad. Well, I am. <laughs> it's too easy. And, and, and I love it. Kids, I love it. You know, <laughs> Not me. Instead of getting the kids to read a book and find out the information, you, you get on there and, well, and Google it up. Are, I haven't got any answers. No, that's not the point. The point is... It's a sense of how we need to adapt to the new circumstances well, that we're in. We've got to start in. talking about it enough that somewhere along the line you've got, got that talking into action. Once you've talked about it enough, then the action comes. You get enough people talking in the one direction, it'll push the door open. And I hope. <laughs> Hi, this is Liz Stringer, and you're listening to The Mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio. 3cr.org.au Hello, I'm Duncan Graham and this is Over the Wall. Today, we resume our conversation with Ben Cording, Chief Solicitor with Tenancy Victoria, about rent reductions, rent relief grants and rent deferrals. Last week on Over the Wall, Ben Cording, the Chief Solicitor with Tenancy Victoria, began to take us through some of the new schemes initiated this year to help tenants cope with the twin effects of pandemic and recession. I'll start by summarising the process you should follow to secure a rent reduction, and then Ben will show you how that feeds into the $3,000 rent relief grants and the peculiar dangers of rent deferral. For the purposes of Consumer Affairs Victoria and other government and non-government agencies, a person is usually judged to be in hardship if rent exceeds 30% of that person's income. This figure goes all the way back to the late 70s Henderson Commission report on poverty and has held true for 40 years. So if your rent currently exceeds that amount, you have a clear path to possible rent reduction and rent relief. The recommended first step is to attempt a negotiation with your landlord or their agent. If you can reach an agreement on a rent reduction with a particular end date agreed, that's a great start. But if you go one step further and have that agreement filed with Consumer Affairs Victoria, you not only can later get protection if the landlord seeks to walk away from the agreement, 
but you also get likely access to a one-off $3,000 rent relief payment, which operates out of the Department of Health and Human Services, but which can be first applied for via Consumer Affairs Victoria. What if you can't reach an agreement on rent reduction with your landlord? Well, believe it or not, you can access a scheme, again via Consumer Affairs Victoria, where a dispute officer acting on your behalf will negotiate with the landlord for you, and if the landlord still resists, can make a binding order that enforces a rent reduction. And this process will cost you nothing. Once you have either a rent reduction registered with Consumer Affairs or a dispute process has been followed, you have an excellent chance of accessing the $3,000 rent relief grant. The grant will not be considered until the rent reduction process has been followed. Neither will the grant be available to tenants who negotiate a rent deferral rather than a reduction. Well, that's the nuts and bolts of it. All of these tools, forms and advice are at the Consumer Affairs website at consumer.vic.gov.au and phone and email contacts are listed on site also. Good luck. When I spoke to Ben Cording recently, he guided me through rent relief grants and we went on to discuss the dangers of rent deferrals. Once you've got an agreement for some sort of reduction, then you can apply for the rental relief grant. So you need to check your eligibility. Your migration status is not a factor. So like in terms of citizenship or not, doesn't matter where you come from. If you've got a tenancy in Victoria, you can access the scheme. It's per individual tenant. If they're co-tenants, like not familial related, if they're couples, it's usually one grant. And so a lot of share households, you know, one person shot through, gone back home or otherwise. So certainly, again, good combination of the rent relief scheme as well as the rent reduction scheme. So the rent relief is, you know, really good news for, for the landlords, probably better news in many ways than the actual land tax benefit the landlords get as well. So yeah, again, it's about people understanding what their rights are in this climate and then the benefits that they both will have. And the government is extending, you know, the support they can. There's quite a lot of money sitting there, but in order for that money to be accessed, people need to take that positive step of applying. So that can be done amicably by some people. As you said, there's plenty of great landlords that have seen the writing on the wall and gone, great, let's do that. Um, and it's been a bit of a no-brainer for them. There are other people that, you know, have got their knickers in a knot and are really anxious and not thinking clearly. Certainly, I don't like math. I'm a lawyer. I'm not a mathematician. But you do need to do a little bit of math. But if you need help with that, again, people within the community or, you know, spend the time, get into the process, even if you can't do math. <laughs> However, people can just need to click that button, start that process. The experience in the US at the moment is that there seems to be a lot of rent deferrals and this is causing a bit of anxiety in the US because obviously it means, yes, you're not paying the rent now, but down the track you will be paying it. So it's obvious, I think, well, I hope it's obvious that rent deferral is a very bad option. Have you seen many instances? Yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of them out there. I mean, the the difficulty that everyone has is that a lot of the private agreements, no one has that data. So if it's registered with CAV to get the rent relief, great. But there might be a whole bunch of people where they're not registered. So we don't know the number of deferrals. Some of them are registered and they are deferrals. But from our position, like even if you do the math on a deferral, you'll come out on the 28th of March, be potentially on whatever Centrelink is offering at the time and be sitting on an eight grand debt. And I think the thing not 
not wanting to be an alarmist, but actually sort of give an incentive to get into this rent relief scheme as soon as possible, is that the new reasonable and proportionate test is unlikely to save you from a tenancy where you've got substantial rent arrears. So you can sit on a lot of arrears at the moment. What the law says is that if you can't pay your rent without suffering severe hardship, you can't get evicted for that. So everyone should pay the rent that they can. You know, we'd probably suggest, as I said, probably about 30% of your income as rent. That's what we use in the social housing environment. And then whatever debt's there, you know, that's something you'll have to deal with. But if you come out at the other end and you don't do this and you've done nothing, then that sitting there, that could very easily lead to eviction. And that's one of the biggest questions about how everyone responds to this is about what is going to happen to the housing market, the property market, come the 28th of March or whenever it may be pending the pandemic and that cliff for so many people about the eviction. So we'll have to see how that plays out and, you know, what the community voice is. So really people's stories are so important in understanding the situation. So people with, you know, kids that have got disabilities and are carers, you know, um, the elderly who have got limited super available or funds or, you know, ironically, investment properties may have gone bad. Who knows? Domestic violence victims that are sitting on large amounts of debt because their partner signed them up for a car that they never got the benefit from. So there are so many issues which, if they get the advice, can be unpacked. And that's really where the community legal sector generally um, has got this additional funding to try and catch what is not really a singular issue. It's just that everything has been, you know, put on the hot plate and everything's coming out. So the sooner we can start identifying those systemic issues and responding to them appropriately and in a balanced and considered way, the better the whole community will be. That's how the economics needs to work. It's not about, you know, how much more credit can we sink in to make the, you know, the washing machine turn over again. Tune in next week for more info from Ben Cording on evictions, on new natural justice approaches to tenancy law and the timing and shape of the long-awaited new Residential Tenancies Act. Once more, we'd like to thank Ben for his time and expertise. A weak solidarity reggae team listener when, after commenting last week that the private sector stuffing up the quarantine security was like manna from heaven for Lord Rupert of Wapping and his Wapping sin in particular, in his crusade to make us aware of just how evil is the pejorative Dan and his government, Dan himself and the whole government structure provided more manner by taking out the Topsy Award, not of the week, but more like the century, when we discovered nobody, absolutely nobody, contracted out the quarantine security to the super-efficient private sector. No government minister, no senior bureaucrat, nobody, not one person, especially the former minister, whom some people thought on no stronger grounds than she was called Minister for Health, that she had something to do with health. Jenny McKickus, when I'm down, how dare they try to blame her for health problems? So it seems the private security lots just turned up and by sheer chance happened to turn up at the very spots where people were in quarantine, topsy security. Although seeing this essential of economics contracting out by the inefficient bloated hand of the public sector is called 
contracting out. We might have thought someone could produce, yes, you guessed it, a contract signed by somebody which would be a reasonable starting point to maybe trace who was responsible. Probably one of the overnight cleaners in Treasury Place, also the product of contracting out, always blame a wage slave. Except, of course, it was the Beecher-Stowe effect topsy from the days of unwaged slaves. We might have thought the pejorative Dan and the team could have at least got together and come up with some sort of explanation other than no idea. Interesting, though, a clearly arts conservative writing in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review attacked Dan and the team for maintaining the dated dichotomy between employers and workers when we know they have common interests, because documents before the quarantine inquiry showed the government had consulted Trades Hall to determine which security firms were that obvious oxymoron, a good employer. And the writer was aghast they would be so biased because caring business class governments would never consult caring lawyers on any matter. But the article raises an interesting question. Who consulted Trades Hall? Because we can assume who consulted must have known something about the contracting out, unless Topsy also contract contacted Trades Hall. Also interesting that the army of critics excoriating the pejorative and co over the privatisation of quarantine security are still the biggest advocates of contracting out, of privatising any government service that can turn a neat little profit for the private sector. But the government remains aware of the prosperity of the community depends on the private sector. Thus, big supremo scuttled them more or less than a.k.a. Scomo's declaration that we must allow market forces on the great level playing field of world's best practice competition policy to get back to doing what it does best, holding out its hand for the government to fill up the begging bowl or holding out its bowl, or begging hand, or whatever, and how will the laissez-faire discipline of the market good for all of us do this for us? With billions more of the public purse. In the same week that JobKeeper and JobSeeker funding was slashed, and this ripping off by evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers was exposed in Thursday's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, with an objective report on a mooted wage rise at the ABC. Fury as ABC staff defy pay freeze, the headline screamed, and what balanced reporting. ABC staff have been branded self-indulgent for insisting on a pay rise when other public sector workers on the front line of the coronavirus pandemic have had their wages frozen. 80% of the public broadcasters' staff voted against a proposal to defer the pay rise for six months and to instead pocket the cash immediately. What selfish, selfish workers. The objective balanced report suffering only from that split infinity. That story of work greed balanced by the P1 headline, 1.5 billion to supercharge manufacturing, jobs kick for Vic. Positive good news story. And ironically, the continuation of that story, 1.5 billion jobs boost for Victoria, just story of worker greed. Caring employers receiving billions, good for all of us, self-indulgent workers pocketing the cash, a threat to social order. 
Presumably on that logic, we hope workers taking the jobs created, if the $1.5 bill ends up doing that, will not want to rip off their caring employers' government money by expecting some of it. And we wonder, uh, that bit about frontline workers having their wages frozen, just how much say those workers had in the frozen bit. Thankfully, we're getting into warmer weather, so they probably won't freeze quite as much in their comfortable little gutters. Why does gutter remind me? The biggest debate about the US of the UN of the US of the world big debate was whether the brouhaha babble could be called debate, despite the great respect and courtesy on display, as would-be big supremo Joe Biden by capital spoke for about 15 to 20 percent of the time, and big supremo Donald Trump or the poor for only about 99% of the time, meaning whatever Joe was saying, we couldn't hear anyway, but I doubt that will detract from our collective knowledge, although there was a universal verdict, well, in the US of, which regards itself as the universe, verdict on the victor. What's the third choice? The electorate screamed desperately, hopefully. It's also Donald's God-given right to appoint the Supreme Court bench. The commie, lefty, violence-in-the-streets Democrats appoint the worst judges ever, ever. And speaking of God, he has nominated Amy Catholic Barrett. If you're pregnant, Barrett, who said she would rule based on the law, as given us by the dear baby Jesus. God bless America. He'll sure as hell need it. We're aware of the odd problem financial whiz kid AMP on the customers has struck, like little matters such as failing to notice that so many of the customers from whom it was gouging profits were long since dead, and then appointing a sexual harasser to a senior position, and then being forced to unappoint the sexual harasser after the proverbial hit the fan. We're also aware that our mainstream news sources have a stable of economic gurus they dredge up regularly to explain to us the intricacies, intricacies of the delicate flower that is the economy, one of whom is AMP on the customer's chief economist, Shane Oliver for Profit. Well, a mob called Stockspot does an annual review of the 100 largest super funds and discovered that surprise, who would have believed an AMP on the capital fund came in at number 100, the worst in the country, with a return of minus, that's right, minus 2.2%. In other words, workers in that fund lost money. Stockspot commenting, this is the first time over the eight years we've done this report, we've ever, ever seen a balanced fund with five-year returns. And guess who manages this little financial disaster? Yep, the brilliant go-to for expert comment and advice, Chief Economist Shane. So we should be hanging on every word of his expert deliberations and advice. My non-expert advice for those who believe in investing in capitalism and exploiting those who produce the wealth is, take notice of Shane's advice and do the opposite. Maybe Shane advised the government in 2018 on the purchase of 
12 point something hectares of land for a second runway at the new Western Sydney Airport, for which the public purse handed over 30 million to a couple of billionaires, even though the land would be required for 32 years, 22 times higher than the New South Wales government paid for a similar parcel of land, leading the Auditor General to issue a blistering report that the purchase was unethical, unethical. Bit unfair, seeing the 30 mil was only 27 or so mil above the real value. The government reassessing the valuation shortly after from 30 mil to 3 mil. And then leasing the land back to the billionaires, once they, the billionaires, recovered from laughing all the way to, at a valuation of 920,000, bit less than 30 mil. Oh, and the government also spent another 10 mil to build an underpass to link two pieces of land owned by the billionaires. And now again, a few months later, the government could have picked up the land for billions less through compulsory acquisition. Hard to imagine why the Auditor-General was so critical, or why independent Polly Zali Stegall claimed it was a classic reason why we need a federal anti-corruption body. Finally, Final word, though, to the billionaires, Tony Peric, or Peric, P-E-R-I-C-H, real names, who said the 30 mil they pocketed was fair and reasonable, for which they galloped away with the they would say that, wouldn't they, award of the week. Good morning. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. IPAN, the Independent Peaceful Australian Network, have been running seminars around the issue, will the US alliance drag Australia into another war? Australia needs an independent foreign policy. In fact, IPAN's uh, going to be running an inquiry into the topic and are asking for public submission. So go to their website, go to their website for access to information and where you can put your submissions. Today we are going to hear what I think is possibly the most comprehensive outline of American military strategy in relation to China and Australia's role from academic and author Vince Scapatura. The study was carried out by the Defence Science Board, which is a a peak federal statutory committee to provide uh, advice to the Secretary of Defence on a whole range of different matters relating to the US military and US defence policy. The terms of reference were to advise the US Department of Defence and the Secretary of Defence on a strategy for countering the growing adversary capabilities by certain US uh, potential adversaries to defeat America's ability to project power globally. It reveals kind of the audacity of the US power projection objectives across the world and how it perceives a threat to those. The study says for nearly three decades following the end of the Cold War, U.S. military forces have been able to prosecute offensive strike operations wherever and whenever needed. From Kuwait and Kosovo to Afghanistan and Iraq, U.S. air superiority, coupled with adversaries' limited land and sea-based defenses, enabled the U.S. to attack and defeat enemy forces with little risk and very low losses. So far, so good for U.S. global military dominance. Uh, However, the study goes on to kind of lament and warn. uh, The world was watching and learning. Potential adversaries, very shrewdly, concluded that permitting the U.S. to operate freely in or near their territory would end badly for them in the event of hostilities. 
and thus was born what they refer to as the anti-access area denial strategy. National Defence Strategy 2018 has specifically identified uh, Russia and China as possessing the most potent A2AD capabilities, which limit the capacity of the United States to project power globally. Uh, so A2AD basically stands for its area access area denial, but it basically stands for advances or is the result of advances in long range precision missiles and the accompanying intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities that allow those missiles to target what they're, what they're looking for and that are able to potentially deny the US ability to project power in the air and the land and the sea approaches of its potential adversaries. And in particular, although sometimes you hear references to Iran or North Korea, uh, really who they're uh, most concerned about is Russia and China. And in fact, in the future, uh, China more than Russia. The report goes on to talk about two asymmetries of power that exist between uh, Russia, China, and the United States that kind of augment. The first is the asymmetry of space and time. What is later referred to in the report as the advantage of proximity. That is, Russia and China have the advantage of being based in their own homelands when they're attempting to defend their territories and new territories from US power projection capabilities. Um, that's the asymmetry of space and time that is uh, considered a threat to uh, US national security. The second is the asymmetry of stakes. That is, uh, defending their homelands and their new territories uh, are interests that are vital to them and important, but not vital to the United States. As I mentioned, um, China really is identified as the primary kind of future threat. Russia is sometimes referred to in in uh, US military publications as the pacing threat, but the real concern is about China's growing aid to AD capabilities into the future, obviously because of its immense and growing economic power and the capacity of potentially transferring that into military power. It's not only the nature of the threat, threat, but the extent of it as well. China's A2 AD capabilities are not going to lead to Chinese hegemony in the Western Pacific or anything close to it. This is the argument that China is sometimes referred to in amongst hawks in the US and Australia, amongst the, the so-called Wolverines in the bipartisan group of anti-China hawks in Australia, that China is somehow like, you know, imperial Japan reincarnation. It's going to, if left unchecked, project its power and replace the United States as the hegemon in the Indo-Pacific sometime in the near future. Uh, that's not the case. E even today, the likelihood is that the United States would maintain air and sea superiority in China's near seas, everywhere except maybe the immediate Chinese littorals and, and maybe the airspace over Taiwan. The concern is about the future, that one day in the future, uh, China would be able to deny the US air superiority and uh, naval uh, sea superiority in the South China Sea within, you know, 500 or so kilometres of China's coast. And, and mention that it's a plausible scenario on current trajectories that maybe by the year 2040, maybe it's plausible that both the United States and China will be able to create a mutual exclusion zone 400 to 600 kilometres off China's coast where neither China or the US can maintain air and sea superiority and they can equally deny it to each other. Nothing like Chinese hegemony or in the Western Pacific or, or anything close to it. So, yes, both the nature and the extent of the threat is exaggerated, uh, but it is nevertheless fueling military modernization programs and modernization programs in, in doctrine that um, have very serious consequences 
In order to defeat or attempt to defeat these A to AD systems and achieve the objectives in the, in the National Defense Strategy 2018 of the US, and which uh, pointed out the need to deter and defeat a near peer competitor, a near peer nuclear competitor. So there are these kind of um, separate war doctrines being developed. Uh, most recently, Defense Secretary Mark Esper uh, ordered a kind of joint concept to be developed by the end of this year, in fact, under the coordination of the Joint Chiefs of Staff with each of the services responsible for a particular portion. So each of the services is now working together to join all of their various concepts into one joint concept. And it's generally uh, the name that has been referred to it or is joint all-domain operations or all-domain operations. This is the new unifying concept for the US military to effectively fight and defeat uh, China and Russia in conflict. I want to point out that recently the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021 was passed uh, by both the House and the Senate in the United States on the 21st and the 23rd of July, respectively. This is the, the, the defense budget for the Pentagon, the biggest in US history, uh, $740 billion. That's over a trillion Australian dollars. Uh, it tops peak spends during you know, the Vietnam War and during the 1980s uh, military uh, buildup. The principal justification uh, in passing that, that act was regaining the advantage over Russia and China, with China and the Indo-Pacific theater being the priority theater. Uh, both of the House and the Senate agreed, in fact, that they would be prioritizing the Indo-Pacific in their respective defense. Uh, but the idea is to here to allocate, you know, extra billions of dollars in funding for more uh, missile defense systems, more forward basing, more pre-positioning of military equipment, more interoperability with allies and so on, particularly in the Indo-Pacific because of the concern about China. So in other words, this new uh, American way of war, this new war fighting doctrine, this uh, concern about defeating uh, China in particular in a war, this is fully funded, a fully funded enterprise. So what is joint all domain operations? It's an evolving concept and I've kind of gleaned these uh, different um, elements of it, the most important element from the various evolving concepts that are being developed by each of the armed services follows. The first is a kind of a more dispersed and maneuverable presence operating within the adversary's A to AD threat zone. So the idea here is that uh, in order to avoid the vulnerabilities of concentrated forces, large naval platforms, for example, or bases that could be targeted by China, China's long-range missile systems, uh, the US is looking to disperse its forces over a wide area. And also to be able to operate within China's uh, A to AD threat zone. But the idea is to create what they call the virtues of mass without the vulnerabilities of concentration. So dispersing the forces in very small teams operating within China's threat zone as a way to neutralize China's long range precision strikes and then having larger concentrations of forces outside come in and finish off the job. The second is confronting adversaries before hostilities break out, seeking a strategic advantage in what the NDS refers to as the competition phase or otherwise known as peacetime. So the United States is looking for, and the justification for this is that, you know, uh, China and Russia are engaging in what they call gray zone activities. You might've heard that term before. It was uh, in our latest defense strategic update you know, activities like information and cyber warfare and electronic warfare and so on. And they're engaging in these things all the time during peacetime. So we need to do it too. In fact, we need to do it more. 
expanding, confronting adversaries, not just during hostilities, but rapidly and aggressively during peacetime as well. That's the second element. And the third element is kind of the command and control system to connect all of the forces together. So the idea of joint all domain operations is joining all of the armed services in all domains, you know, the kinetic domains, but also the non-kinetic domains like information space and cyber and electronic warfare and so on, uh, and connecting them all together, all platforms, all sensors and all weapons from all domains and all services, and to do so at machine speeds, you know, integrating technologies like artificial learning, machine learning and so on, in order to overmatch uh, the enemy. The most kind of articulate and revolutionary document that has been kind of released by the US military in attempting to achieve this, this objective of a more dispersed and maneuverable force was released recently by a General David H. Berger, who is the Commandant of the US Marine Corps. And it really made a lot of waves throughout the national security community. And the reason was that the U.S. Marine Corps planned to completely retool uh, solely as a single purpose built force designed for great power conflict with China. And so no longer would the U.S. Marines be uh, equipped to fight multiple wars in different environments, whether it's desert warfare or Arctic warfare or counterinsurgency warfare. No. From now on, there will be a single purpose built force solely for design for great power conflict with China. They will be capable of, of, of course, of fighting wherever the uh, president orders them to go. Uh, but this is the primary objective in terms of defense acquisitions and force structure and so on. Uh, the main idea in the Commandant's planning guidance was this new uh, concept called standing forces. So the idea of standing forces is to have very small teams of 50 to 100 personnel, marine personnel, dispersed across islands within the first island chain from China's coast, armed with new long-range uh, missiles to ch target the Chinese Navy. Uh, these long-range missiles are under development. Uh, the US was barred from having uh, ground-based long-range missiles as a result of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, but the Trump administration, administration withdrew from that Cold War Treaty recently, and so now they are unrestrained in developing new ground-based long-range missiles which the U, uh, US Marines are looking to uh, purchase, to develop and to deploy within the chain of major archipelagos out from, out from China. So the idea is for the Marines to use these small forces with ground-based uh, launch missiles uh, to neutralize China's uh, short and medium range missile capability within the first island chain, imposing sea denial on China, denying China the capacity to achieve its superiority and that in, off its coast, and then allowing larger concentrations of forces in the outside zone to penetrate that inside zone and finish off China's uh, missile and ISR capabilities. So the US Army have actually developed what they call a multi-domain task force to do the same thing, have a small contingent of forces to be able to island hop within the first island chain in order to penetrate and disintegrate, which is the language, China's A to AD uh, capabilities, particularly with um, a ground-based mobile truck missile called HIMARS, High Mobility Artillery Rocket System. Uh, and the US Army and Marines were training with HIMARS with uh, Australian troops intelligence Sabre uh, last year. I mean, the US military, of course, is already in First Island's chain. They're already present there. But this is talking more about pre-positioning equipment, pre-positioning long-range missiles, uh, and really escalating and dispersing the forces within that uh, region to make them less likely to be uh, vulnerable to uh, China's uh, missile capabilities. You know, apart from using 
multi-domain operations to penetrate and disintegrate China's HOAD. This idea of engaging in, in conflict during the competition phase is something that the US Army, in fact, is really uh, pushing for. The Army's new doctrine, MDO, calls for the need to aggressively and persistently confront China during peacetime, utilizing non-kinetic actions uh, in order to gain a strategic advantage. And so to do this, they've actually created a new unit called the I2Qs unit, in Intelligence, Information, Cyber, Electronic Warfare and Space Command. Uh, they've already been wargaming this concept. This uh, unit is already uh, being deployed. This uh, idea of confronting China in the competition phase is not just about passive intelligence gathering. You know, it's not just about listening in and trying to gather intelligence on, you know, on what China is doing. It's about actively testing and stimulating enemy radars, jammers, cyber defenses, uh, to in fact create a response in those systems that can be analyzed and then fed into targeting databases. Probably not something entirely new. I mean, it's been suspected that you know, the US, which conducts you know, ISR missions along China's coast already you know, hundreds of times per year. In fact, uh, there's been an increase recently. Month of July alone, for example, there were 67 sorties of large reconnaissance planes that were recorded from public sources, and there's probably many more than that. Because of course, there's no way the United States would accept the kind of scope and number and type of intelligence activities that uh, the US does it uh, day in and day out uh, on its own coast. And of course, China doesn't undertake any of these activities right off um, the US coast. The other thing that's kind of a bit of a novel concept um, is the idea of pushing for an interagency, both Defence and State Department effort, to resurrect information warfare. Uh, the kind of operations that were um, around, you know, during the Cold War that were eventually dismantled in the 1990s. Things run by organisations like the United States Information Agency and so on. Psychological warfare operations, information warfare operations and so on. Uh, Lieutenant General Eric Wesley was head of the Army's Future Command Centre and a leader in the development of MDO concept. Uh, said recently that the US needs an operations centre akin to a war room during political campaigns to quote, watch the news cycle every single day and appropriately counter it. This idea of information warfare is something that the US is really pushing. It's pushing its allies also to be able to take the lead in this space as well. And I think thinking about some of the actions that Australia is taking very recently in terms of foreign interference and so on, are partly in response to this pressure from the United States. The idea is that data would be extracted from all domains. So, you know, land, sea, air, state, space, and cyber and to be shared with all of the armed services simultaneously and at machine speeds using artificial intelligence and so on. And we're not talking just about a few sensors here. I mean, talking about hundreds or thousands or even millions of sensors picking up data all the time on the battlefield in, in peacetime and in conflict. And then that information going to a central hub being analyzed by artificial intelligence and then selecting the targets to whichever shooter is best in, in the best position to take out those targets. The way to think of it, uh, in fact, is like the um, ride-sharing service Uber, uh, which you know co connects the best driver to the best rider based on you know sophisticated algorithm based on you know optimal distance and travel time and other kind of uh, variables. Uh, in fact, the Air Force has the designer of Uber on their payroll and about a dozen other industry leaders uh, to design this system. Uh, recently, the Army, which has its own kind of uh, command and control system, but is working closely with the Air Force with um, JADCDU, tested uh, this system in, in something called Project Convergence Wargame, which reduced the kill chains, the time it takes for a space or a drone sensor 
to detect and then the time it takes from from that detection to a piece of artillery opening fire on it down to 20 seconds. Australia is in fact slated to uh, participate in uh, project convergence in 2022 or at least Australia has indicated interest in participating along with the UK in project convergence in 2022. Of course, it heightens the tensions and increases the likelihood of conflict. When you're operating within the first island chain of China, when you're undertaking aggressive ISR operations, when you're confronting China in the competition phase, engaging in information warfare and striving for dominance in all existing and new domains of warfare, what the US military used to call full spectrum dominance, uh, then of course you're increasing the likelihood of conflict. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're in the middle of listening to a speech given by Vince Scapatura about American military strategy in relation to China and how Australia fits in. This, this next bit is particularly about where Australia fits. Okay, so um, how is Australia integrated into this whole JDO concept? The first is base upgrades. Centre for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments signals the possibility for Australia's involvement in the following ways. One, for our air and surface naval forces to augment US outside forces and our submarines to operate inside as part of the inside forces inside China's first island chain. Uh, For long-range ISR and land-based precision strike capabilities in our northern islands to help stiffen the first island chain. Uh, For US to have access to our northern air bases which it considers to be invaluable for US bombing, refueling, patrol and unmanned ISR missions. CSBA also has wargamed the idea of Australian air bases being used, particularly in Darwin and Tyndall, for US long-range operations against China. It found that they were critical, but uh, lacking fuel storage and sufficient runways to support heavy tankers and bombers. Uh, And of course, this is the context for the recent announcement by uh, Morrison in February 2022 Uh, lo and behold, do exactly that. Extend the existing runways in both uh, Tyndall to enable US strategic uh, bomber operations. And also, uh, more recently at the recent Osmin talks in July 2020, to uh, create a Darwin strategic fuel reserve in order to support these longer range heavy bomber presence in the North. Then there is war games. Sabre 2017 was in fact the first time the US Army's multi-domain task force had its pilot exercise. Uh, Rim of the Pacific 2018, uh, the US multi-domain task force uh, had its second exercise. Australian forces participated in that. And of course, last year in Talisman Sabre, the Australian Army in fact played a lead role in uh, NBA war games with this uh, high mobility artillery rocket system missile launcher, where they uh, war game the idea of deploying this uh, missile system uh, on, on a small island quickly and rapidly uh, in order to create uh, an A2 AD uh, forward deployed bubble in a mini version of how the United States sees a a war against China to unfold. There's a new Department of Defense initiative to link uh, testing and training ranges across half the planet effectively and and most of the Pacific uh, in what's the largest coalition range complex in the world. In the latest U.S. Indo-Pacific Command uh, report for the National Defense Authorization Act, there was a kind of mysterious $40 million mark for Australia initiatives in terms of integration into that large testing and training uh, complex that will span across half of the planet, linking testing ranges in the United States to those in the Pacific Islands and into Australia as well. Australia is being uh, integrated um, into this uh, new warfighting concept 
uh, both through war games now and called for future integration um, and, and into the future. Finally, there's the Defence Strategic Update in Australia's Defence Acquisitions. The Australian Defence Department is slated to receive $575 billion over the next 10 years, including $279 billion in defence capabilities. Uh, the Defence Strategic Update has indicated that Australia is going to be acquiring longer range missile and rocket weapons, area denial systems, missile defence systems, that can and research into even longer range systems such as hypersonics. It's important to recognise here that these weapon systems are not about missile defence for Australia. These are not about Australia having missile systems, you know, based on Australian land pointing outwards to prevent an invasion of Australia or an attack on Australia. These are about missile systems that can be forward deployed uh, in the same way that, uh, you know, the multi-domain operations or the joint or domain operation concept envisions. Uh, and in fact, the HIMARS rocket missile system, which I mentioned before, is kind of the primary ground-based missile system that the US Army, US Marines are looking at in their warfighting plans for China. Australia is also uh, thinking about uh, potentially purchasing to, um, to fulfill that objective of getting a longer range missile or rocket system. Um, so if you put all that stuff together, what does it mean? Well, quote from comedy Peter Levy from the Royal Australian Navy, and he says, Australia's Defence White Paper 2016 and the Associated Integrated Investment Plan articulated the need for greater long-range strike capabilities for land forces, including deployable land-based anti-ship missiles. As these capabilities mature, the Australian Army will be well-placed, should the government direct, to operate in conjunction with the US Marine Corps and others in the role of exercising sea denial and supporting the naval forces' freedom of movement. In other words, uh, to be operating with the United States in this new war fighting strategy uh, in conflict with China. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. Before we go, a reminder that the Life Campaign, Living Incomes for Everyone, is running a counter-conversation on budget night. Challenge the budget. Fund everybody's future. Ali Pennington and Tony Evans will be the commentators. Go to the Life Campaign website and uh, register for the event. Until next week, keep listening to 3CR for a big plate of diverse news. Hi, my name's Kath. 3CR has been in my life for decades. Each week I listen to my favourite programs. However, it's in a time of crisis that I really appreciate how important 3CR is. Often, this is when thousands of people are on the streets pushing for change. In this time of COVID, no one is on the streets. 3CR is more important than ever, keeping all our communities connected and informed. 3CR is a remedy for social isolation in this time of physical distancing. Good on you, 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.